Well, it is safe to say that over the past few weeks, we have been dealing with some pretty heavy subjects. Uh, it all started back in chapter 11, uh, when the man after God's own heart, King David, gives in to the lustful desires of his own heart and commits adultery with Bathsheba. You know, I'm convinced in chapter 11 that never in a million years would David have thought that with this one single act that it would alter the rest of his life, but that's exactly what happens. What starts with a single act of adultery eventually leads to a massive cover-up. Of course, David finds out that Bathsheba is pregnant, so he sends Uriah, uh, the husband who is, who is fighting on behalf of Israel, back home to, to be with his wife to try to cover this up. Of course, Uriah is loyal to Israel. He's loyal to the king. He says, I will not do this while my men are out fighting. And so like any good king, David has him killed. David has him assassinated. And so Israel has no idea what has taken place. And it almost looks as if David is just this hero, this knight in shining armor, who has come in to bring this young widow into his home to make her his wife. And now all of a sudden it appears as if they have been given a child. Hashtag blessed, right? That's not what happens. That's, that's not what has taken place. And we see this in 2 Samuel 11, verse 27. Though Israel has no idea what has happened, it says this, but the thing David had done displeased the Lord. And with chapter 12, we see what the Lord does because of it. With chapter 12, David is confronted by Nathan on behalf of God, and this is what God says to David. After giving this powerful and moving story, the Lord says, the sword shall never depart from your house. Because you have despised me. You have taken the wife of Uriah. He doesn't even name Bathsheba. He just goes straight to Uriah, the man who has been killed by the order of David. He says in verse 11, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. The Lord says, All of the things that you did in secret, I'm about to have take place in your life. All of these evil things that are going to be done out in the open. And sadly, the man who was used by God to usher in a golden age for the nation of Israel would experience heartache for the rest of his life. By the end of chapter 12, the baby that was born to both David and Bathsheba dies by the hand of the Lord. Then with chapter 13, the passage that Pastor Mike looked at last week, uh, we see that things get even worse as the sins of the father carry down to the son to David's firstborn son, a man by the name of Amnon. And just as David used his position of power to attain a woman who was not supposed to be his, Amnon uses his position of power to obtain a woman that's not supposed to be his. But it's not a woman down the road. It is his own sister. And Amnon brings her into his chamber and sexually assaults her. The Bible tells us, that, I mean, this is an awful story and, and and just as David fulfills his fleshly desires with Bathsheba and then sends her packing, Amnon does the same thing with Tamar. Cast her out of his presence. Wants nothing to do with her. The Bible says that he hates her because of what has taken place. And Pastor Mike concluded at verse 22, but the, the chapter continues up to verse 39. And it's important for us to understand what happened from verse 23 to verse 39 before we even get into chapter 14. What we discover is that Tamar has a brother named Absalom. 
And Absalom, as any good brother would be, is furious as to what happens to her. Absalom is angered by this, but of course he's not the king, so he can't carry out justice. So, of course, word gets to the king, and as any good father would be, David is furious as to what has happened to Tamar. He is furious with Amnon, but that's where it stops. David doesn't carry out justice. David instead remains silent. And what we see takes place next is that over a period of two years, it appears as if Amnon has gotten away with this scot-free. Amnon has not been found guilty of these awful sins. And though David has put it behind him, though Amnon has put it behind him, Absalom has not. Absalom is thinking of the right moment where he can bring forth swift justice on his brother Amnon. And as these two years pass, Absalom comes up with a perfect opportunity. He throws a big party. And he says, all of the king's sons will be invited to this party. And he goes to David and he says, I want to make sure your firstborn, Amnon, is there. Like, we all want to get together. And so they go out and they begin to celebrate. And Absalom kind of falls back and he says to his servants, the moment that you notice that Amnon is merry with wine, so he's a little tipsy, because the moment you notice that he's tipsy, I want you and your servants to kill Amnon. Does this sound familiar? David says to Joab, the moment that Uriah is fighting in this war, I want you to pull back and I want you to allow these people to jump on him and kill him. Now it happens to David's son. And it takes place. Absalom is fully aware of what he has done. He knows that he could find himself under the wrath of his father, so he leaves. And he goes to a place called Geshur, uh, where his grandfather is king. Now, this is not David's father. This is uh, his mother's father. And he goes into hiding for three years. So I want you to think about this. Over a six-year period, at least, from the moment that David commits adultery with Bathsheba to the moment now that Absalom is hiding in Geshur, David has lost an infant child. A husband has been killed. David has lost his firstborn son. His daughter has been sexually assaulted. And so if you're looking at all of this, you can't help but say in kind of an odd way, great is thy faithfulness. That God is being faithful to the promise, the judgment that he is going to carry out upon David. Now, of course, David's sins have been forgiven. We saw that in chapter 12. He says, there are consequences for your sins. And what you did in private, it will be done out in the public. And that's exactly what has happened. So as we come to chapter 14 this morning, three years have passed. The Bible tells us in verse 1 that in a moment of weakness, after David has grieved the loss of his firstborn Amnon, that he longs for his son. Not Amnon, but instead Absalom. Now in one sense, you can't fault David for this. I mean, David is a father. Absalom is his son. And as any good father would long for his child, David does this. I mean, I don't, no matter what happens to my kids, I have three children. I could never fathom being away from them for three years. David is broken, and in a moment of, of, of depression and weakness, he's struggling with this, trying to figure out, but he's, he's conflicted here because he also knows what Absalom has done. He knows what this would look like if he just restores him and brings him back into the fold. He knows that this could cause many problems, and, he, and he's, he's struggling here. So the Bible tells us in verse 2 that Joab, 
This man who has been loyal to David since the beginning, right? Joab is the one who actually goes out and makes the order for Uriah to be killed. He will do anything for David. Joab is aware of this. He sees the frail state of David, and he says to himself, listen, there is a chance here that the heir to the throne could be lost, that David's dynasty could crumble, so I got to do something. And so he devises a plan that will involve manipulation. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. On Mother's Day, we are going to talk about David the Manipulator. Pastor Mike, of course, is on vacation this week. I said, well, you know, it's Mother's Day is coming up, so you, you, you want me to come up with something that will be encouraging for the mom? He's like, no, I'm going to just continue with 2 Samuel. You should be fine. <laughs> so let's talk about manipulation. This morning we'll talk about David the Manipulated, and if we are to flesh out a main point of our text, I'm convinced it is this. Christians must avoid manipulation at all costs. They must avoid being manipulated. They must avoid being the manipulator at all costs. So I want to flesh this out with two specific points, and the first one is this. I want us to look at the act of manipulation. Let's look at the act of manipulation. Notice verse 2. It says, And Joab sent to Tekoa and brought from there a wise woman and said to her, Pretend to be a mourner and put on mourning garments. Do not anoint yourself with oil, but behave like a woman who has been mourning many days for the dead. And go to the king and speak thus to him. So Joab put the words in her mouth. Now, notice in verse 2 this word wise here. This does not mean that this woman has all the answers to life. The word wise here is skillful. She is crafty. She is an actress. She is good at playing the part. So Joab seeks her out and he says, I want you to play the part before the king. And the technique that Joab is going to use is very similar to what happened in chapter 12 with Nathan. You remember the story with Nathan as he tells David, there's this powerful king who has tons of livestock and there's this very frail man who has just one lamb and it's like a child to him and this powerful leader takes this one lamb. And what does David do? That man deserves to die. Nathan says, you are that man right? David just crumbles. So Joab says, well, if Nathan has done this, I can do the same thing through this woman from Tekoa. The problem is the circumstances are completely different, but that's besides the point. We'll get to that here in just a few minutes, but the text goes on, and it tells us that the woman approaches the king, and she goes into this long story about being a widow. She has no husband, and she's been raising these two sons on her own, and in the heat of the moment, the sons are out in a field and they begin to fight with one another and the one son takes the life of the other. Now the community is furious with this son that is living. They want the dead son's life to be avenged and so they are now going to go after the only son that is alive. And the problem is, she says, you know, the the predicament that we're in here is that if he is taken, then my husband's name will be lost forever. Like, there will be no heir. I will basically cease to exist. I will not have any influence whatsoever. I mean, my, my husband's memory will be lost forever. Will you have mercy? And verse 8 tells us that David does not automatically say yes. Instead, David says, give me time to think about it. Like, I'm sure that David is thinking about what has taken place between Amnon and Absalom. I'm sure he might even be remembering the case between Cain and Abel where this happens. It's very similar as to what takes place here between Amnon and Absalom, or I'm sorry, the, the false story that this woman gives and Cain and Abel. 
And he says, I, I need to just think about this for a moment. And she says, well, let me speak. Here's the thing. I mean, at any moment, these, these people could come in and they could harm me if I am hiding out this son who has, has committed this crime. And he, and he says, well, I will ensure that nothing will happen to you. She goes, yeah, I understand, but, but we've got to act now. Like, this is going to be bad. And so verse 11, look what David does. He says, as the Lord lives, not one hair of your son shall fall to the ground. Hook, line, and sinker. She's got him. David says, I'm going to pardon this guy. And almost in an instant with verse 13, I could see her, just these crocodile tears are coming down her face. She's got her hands in them. And all of a sudden, she raises up. She wipes the tears away. And then she says, then why have you planned a thing against the people of God? Why have you put the nation of Israel in jeopardy? She says, for in giving this decision, the king convicts himself, and as much as the king does not bring his banished one home again, you could be the person who brings Israel down because you have not reconciled with your son. I just imagine David's face here. I mean, she's basically saying you are a hypocrite. You have acquitted my son of murder, yet you will not acquit your own son of murder. What is she doing? With the act of manipulation, she is manipulating David emotionally. Right? She is tugging at his heart. And David just gives in completely. I mean, how many times does this happen to us? Not even on heavy things, but if we think about something light. Like, I, I have three sons, or three kids. I have two sons and a daughter, a lively daughter. And they know every single night during the weekdays at 8.30 p.m., they have to be in bed. They have to have their baths done. They have to have PJs on. They have to be in bed. And it never fails. By 8.31, there is a child that's walking down the hallway. Anybody experience this? What do you need? My stomach hurts. What do you mean your stomach hurts? You were just doing backflips in your bed just a minute before. My stomach hurts. I'm thirsty. I'm, I'm bothered because I can't figure out, are, are zebras, do they have black stripes or white stripes? My ear feels funny. Like all these weird things, what are they doing? They're playing us, right? They are seeking to emotionally manipulate us. And nine times out of ten, I don't give in. You know why? Because you can't manipulate a once manipulator. Like I was the king of this kind of stuff growing up. I would fake sleepwalk for the sake of trying to stay awake for a longer period of time. You can't manipulate me. I, used to, I was the king of this. But you know who they get every time? My wife. Not because my wife is unaware of what they're doing, but, man, as any good mom, like she, has, she has their hearts, and she loves them and adores them, and she'll look and she'll say, Ryan, just give him a drink. Just, just go into the room and lay in their tiny little bed and rub their stomachs for the next two hours until you fall asleep because <laughs> you're tired. She gives in every single moment. They're emotionally manipulating her. And this is exactly what happens to David. David is being manipulated emotionally, but instead of being forced to rub a kid's stomach for two hours, he's forced to acquit his son of charges concerning the death of his firstborn. I mean, the thing is, if, if David was thinking clearly, David should have said, lady, you have no idea what you're talking about. This isn't even close to what has happened with my son. That was in the heat of the moment. Even Cain and Abel was in the heat of the moment. 
But with Absalom, he, this was premeditated murder. Absalom had been thinking of how to kill this son, this brother, for two years. This is not even on the same level playing field. But he doesn't. And it will eventually cost him for this. Many of us find ourselves being manipulated, not just on light things when it comes to our children, but on very serious subjects. Some of us are being emotionally manipulated now in a toxic relationship where the person just verbally abuses you and mistreats you, and yet somehow it's your fault. You stay in this sort of relationship. Let me just say, like, if you were manipulated, you've got to nip this in the bud, in the words of Barney Five. If you're a manipulator, you need to stop. But it's not just with emotional manipulation. I mean, we think about our own sin. How sin will often manipulate us emotionally. Like, if I can just have this one sin just one time, then all will be okay. Okay, if I can just have this to satisfy my heart, then I can just go on and nobody else will be affected. That's exactly what David did in chapter 11 as he's longing for this woman. He has feelings for her. If I could just have her just once, no one will know and no one will get hurt. And now look at what has happened. We do this all the time. If I could just have that woman at work who's not my spouse. If I could just have that man at my job that is not my spouse. Just once. If I could just have the car, the house, if I could just have these things that I'm convinced will make me happy, right? Giving into the idols of our hearts, then everything will be better, yet it will eventually kill you in the end. We must wage war against allowing our sinful flesh to manipulate us. We must wage war against our flesh, causing us to manipulate people. We must wage war when we find ourselves wrong because the young waitress messes up your order and you seek to prove a point and humiliate her because you need to feel valid. You need to defend yourself and let her know how foolish she is. All of these things are a result of manipulation. David was manipulated emotionally, but I want you to notice next, David was also manipulated theologically. He was manipulated theologically. Look at verse 14. So after accusing David of basically sinning against the people of Israel, she defends Absalom. She makes excuses for Absalom. And she says this, listen, we must all die. Genesis 2, the the moment you eat of that tree, you will die. Now everyone dies. If Amnon wasn't going to die by the hand of Absalom, Amnon would have died some other way. All of us must die. We are like water spilled on the ground, which cannot be gathered up again. But notice what she says next. She says, but God will not take away life. He devises means so that the banished one will not remain an outcast. Now you look at that and you're like, ooh, that'll preach. That's truth. But not in the way in which this woman presents it. She's twisting theology to support her position Sure, Absalom did a bad deed, but God's not in the business of carrying out justice. God is in the business of restoring life. God is in the business of bringing forth forgiveness. And in this moment, David's false gospel sirens should have been blasting. But they're not. He gives in. Let me ask you this question. Does the Lord devise means so that people who are banished will no longer remain that way? 
Of course he does. I mean, that's our story, right? The banished, being separated from God because of our sin, and yet because of Christ, we have now been redeemed. Of course this is gospel truth. But he doesn't do it by allowing us a free pass. Instead, he does it by allowing the Son of God to have all of the wrath and the justice be carried out upon him rather than us. He does it by allowing his Son to die so that we wouldn't have to. And in this way, God is demonstrating that absolutely he is a God of love, but he is a God of love who is just, and he's a God of love who is holy, and he will not allow sin to be overlooked. But this woman does not go there. This woman is like Satan in the garden. Not only Satan in the garden, but like Satan when Jesus is tempted in the wilderness. What does Satan do? Satan affirms truth. You are the son of God. And we say along with Satan, amen. So because you are the son of God and because you have committed to fast for 40 days and 40 nights, listen, you're hungry. You can turn these stones into bread. Could Jesus have done this? Amen. But what does Jesus say? No, no, no. The Bible also says that the word, or man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. He wages war against Satan by using sound theology, sound scripture. Satan says, okay, well, let me take you to the top of a temple. The Bible says that the angels will see to not even your heel being nicked. So just throw yourself from the temple. He's quoting scripture. Jesus says, no, no, no. But the Bible also says with a healthy understanding of theology that you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. I will give you everything if you fall down and worship me. What does he say? Get away from me. For you shall worship the Lord your God alone. We are living in a time where Hollywood and politicians and much of our society, even churches, are telling us that it's okay to believe in God just as long as he doesn't overstep. Just as long as he doesn't expect us to alter our lives in any shape or fashion. It's okay to believe in God. It's okay to believe in a God who has a wonderful plan for your life. It's okay to believe in a God who will bless you with blessings from heaven if you just give a little bit more to the church. It's okay to do whatever you want and to not alter your life by any means because God loves you and as, his, as he is your creator, he has created you to love and pursue someone else to be the object of your affection regardless of the fact if it's a person of the same sex. God is a God of love. And let me ask you this question, is God a God of love? Of course. But the Bible tells us that God demonstrates his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died. The Son of God died so that you might live. And as the Son of God dies, and as the Son of God is ultimately resurrected from the grave, the Holy Spirit invades our lives and transforms us more and more into the image of Christ to where we now wage war against our sin, and we wage war against the things of the flesh, and we pursue holiness and righteousness, not because we're seeking to obtain salvation, but because we've already got it. It was a twisting of theology here, and this is why, church, we must saturate ourselves in the scriptures. This is why we must hold fast to the things of the Lord. Psalm 119, beginning in verse 9, he asked the question, how can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. 
He says, with my whole heart I seek you. So this isn't a, a lost man. Like, this is a believer. Let me not wander from your commandments. Is this your desire this morning? Let me not wander from your ways. Let me exhibit Christ in my life rather than Satan. He says, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. David gives in to the twisting of theology. He makes an emotional decision. He makes a decision based off of bad theology, and because of it, it will hurt him. We see the act of manipulation with verses 1 through 24, but lastly, I want you to notice the outcome of manipulation with verses 25 through 33. You know, it's almost comical what takes place here. As she's talking, she says, listen, yeah, it's, it's come out that I, this was a trick, and your servant put me up to this, and I mean, he, he cares about you. He cares about the nation of Israel. And he knew, and listen how she still tugs on him emotionally, being wise as the angels, that you'd make the right decision. And, and David hears all this, and he's beginning to sniff it out almost immediately. He goes, who put you up to this? Did Joab put you up to this? Like, he knows right away that this is not ultimately the original words of this woman. It's kind of like my five-year-old daughter who came up to me a couple weeks ago and says, Daddy, you are acting irrational." That wasn't her own work. Who, who put you up to this? Did, did mama put you, did, you, did my mother-in-law put you up to this? <laughs> David knows fully that this is someone else. And he goes, this was Joab, wasn't it? And she says, yes. So David brings Joab in. He says, I will act on behalf of you, my servant. I will restore Absalom. But notice what happens here with verse 24. David says, however, here's, here's the condition. Let him dwell apart in his own house. He's not to come into my presence. So Absalom lived apart in his own house and did not come into the king's presence. And with verse 28, we see how long Absalom lives like this. He does not come into the presence of the king for two years. The outcome of manipulation, what we're seeing here, is that the consequences most definitely outweigh the benefits. This is not justice. This is not even grace. Like this is some odd middle road where there is no reconciliation. There's no restoration whatsoever. There's no carrying out of justice. I mean, and you think about Absalom for a moment. Absalom is very similar to the prodigal son that Jesus talks of in Luke 15. The only difference is the prodigal son in Jesus's story comes back on his own. Absalom doesn't. They have a huge celebration for the prodigal son in Luke 15. They don't have a celebration for Absalom here. And we're seeing here that all of the things that he thought would bring him happiness by just bringing him back and not handling sin, not dealing with what has taken place, we see that the consequences outweigh the benefit. How often does this happen for us? If I could just have that woman, if I could just have that sin, and then we take that sin and within a few minutes or a few weeks or a few months, we begin to realize this does not bring me satisfaction. This does not bring me joy. I said it a few weeks ago, the last time I had preached, if I could just have that truck, then I would be happy. And I've just focused and living for the glory of this truck. And then I get the truck and I have a big fat payment. And it's not easy paying that payment. Consequences outweigh the benefits for David. 
And what we will begin to realize here with chapter 14 is that this chapter is setting the stage for what is to come in chapters 15 through 18. You know, it's interesting. In verse 25 of this passage, all of a sudden the author breaks and he says, Now in Israel there was no one so much to be praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. So why are they bringing this up? It says, from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. And when he would cut the hair of his head, for at the end of every year, he used to cut it when it was heavy on him. He'd weigh the hair and it was 200 shekels, which is about five pounds. So so clearly this is a picture of like me, right? (laughs) Just gorgeous. So much hair. Why is it mentioning this? And it says there was born to Absalom three sons. The sons aren't mentioned, but the daughter is mentioned. And what's the daughter's name? Tamar. All of this is letting us know that Absalom has remembered what he has done. Absalom names his daughter Tamar, not in honor of her, but to constantly remember the fact that he had avenged the assault of his sister And what he is doing here, when you get to chapter 15, what you begin to realize is is because of his charm, because of his beauty, he's winning the hearts of Israel. Why? Because Absalom will attempt a coup and will seek to murder his father in order to take the throne. He's just as bitter towards his father as he is his brother. So in chapter 15, you have Absalom standing at a gate where all of these people are waiting to speak to the king and he says to them as he puts his arms around them, this beautiful looking man and just says, hey, you know, here's the deal. Um, King David's not going to be able to help you, but if I was the judge of Israel, I would help you. And what is this ultimately proving here? With the outcome of manipulation, what we're seeing is that the consequences will soon prove to be destructive. They will eventually destroy any sort of significant reconciliation that David might have with his son. They will make David's life even more miserable as he is going to be on the run from his son, not to take away thunder from Pastor Mike when he preaches on these next chapters. And Absalom will eventually die. Another son will be taken. Why? All because David remains silent David was emotionally manipulated. David was theologically manipulated. And in the end, it comes back to bite him. We must wage war against manipulation. Now, if we stop right there as we get ready to close, this would be nothing more than a a moralistic sermon. Avoid this, and you'll be good. Do this, and you'll be all right. But there's something for us here. There's something important for us to understand with this. Because even at the end of verse 33, you have this crazy story where Absalom is longing for the attention of his father. I mean, he knows that if he's going to become the heir of the throne, then he's going to have to be in his father's good graces, at least at this moment. He's got to have his father's endorsement, at least in this moment. And so he calls out for Joab, and Joab ignores him. And he calls out again, and Joab ignores him. Maybe Joab's realizing this was a bad mistake. And so as any good son would do, he sets Joab's field on fire to get his attention. And then he says, listen, this is awful where I am at. This is awful the state that I'm in. I should have just stayed in Gesher. I want to see the king. I, I want to be in his presence. And the Bible tells us at the end here that he comes into the presence. He bows before him to on the ground and the king kisses Absalom and everything swept under the rug. 
Here's what we have to understand in a passage like this. Where's the message of hope in something like this, seeing all of this destruction and how awful this is? The message of hope is found in the fact that all of us are Absalom. Even David was just like Absalom. And what the Bible tells us is that even in the midst of all of this, God would use a failure like David and the sins that he had committed to ultimately usher in the arrival of the Son of God. And what's amazing about the arrival of the Son of God is as he bears the punishment of our sin on on himself, that he boldly stands before God the Father, speaking on a whole bunch of Absalom's behalf, who were banished from the presence of God because of our sin. And rather than using deception like this woman did from Tekoa, he says their sins have been paid, their sins have been atoned for, there is forgiveness because of the death of myself. And the father says then they are acquitted of all charges. And because they are acquitted of all charges, we now are not hanging on the fringes of God's kingdom. We now stand right at his throne as sons and daughters to the king, And as we plead with God to give us the strength to not be manipulated, as we plead with God to give us the strength to not be the manipulator, but to to wage war against these sins and to pursue holiness, we don't have to burn a field to get God's attention. God listens to his children and God grants them the desires of their hearts, which the desires of the believer's heart is to pursue this righteousness, is to pursue this holiness because all of our sins have been paid for by the glorious work and the bloodshed of Jesus Christ. Hallelujah for the cross. Hallelujah for the fact that God does devise plans to bring banished ones back into his presence. And that is the truth that we all have this morning. So where are you at? Maybe you're feeling defeated. Maybe you are struggling this morning because you feel as if your sins outweigh your holiness. And you're a believer. I would urge you, man, listen, as a son and daughter, you have the ability to approach his throne and God will listen. Cast your cares. Cast your burdens. Seek forgiveness for before the Father because of great mediator, Jesus Christ. The Father listens. If you are an unbeliever this morning and you think you've done too much, David did a whole lot of bad stuff. And yet God still pursues him. God still keeps him in his presence. And God does the same for us. You can find forgiveness. You can find salvation because of the work of Jesus Christ. Run to the cross this morning. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we...